better things to do with my money. Welcome to the life and times of Captain Barney Miller. I am your host, Mike White. I am joined, of course, by Lieutenant Commander Chris Stashew. And just like Wojohowicz, I know they're going to misspell my last name. That's for damn sure. We are talking about the last three episodes of the first season of Bernie Miller, which came in as a mid-season replacement, and we are ending strong with Escape Artist, which aired on April 10th, 1975, Hair, which aired on April 17th, 1975, and The Hero, which aired on May 1st, 1975. Chris, what did you think of these episodes overall? And then we can kind of dive in. I think that these are the three best episodes of the season. I don't think, at least for the last episode for the hero, I don't think there's anything that comes close this season, but compared to the last couple episodes that we've done where it's these three episode stands that we're doing, these are the three consistently strongest episodes of all the episodes we've seen this season, except for maybe the first episode. They ended very strong with these three episodes. The middle one, uh, Hair, felt a little bit like Ms. Cop as far as the officer that comes in. There's a little bit of a misunderstanding, and then he eventually becomes kind of like a hero to the guys. But we'll definitely talk about that as we get there. Let's talk about The Escape Artist, which stars, oh my goodness, Roscoe Lee Brown as Charlie Evan Jeffers, this man who has escaped from all of these unescapable prisons. Wow, I love Roscoe Lee Brown, and I was so happy to see him show up in this. I mean, he's the best part of the episode. He might be the best guest character in the season. There are some characters that have kind of come in and out a couple times. Uh, I forget the actor's name. I believe uh, he was playing a homosexual character. He is a close second to Roscoe Lee Brown. I was really glad, too, to see Leonard Frey as Roland Gussick, the Birdman. There's a lady complaining about a bird on the roof of a building across the street for crying out loud. You're a public servant. Got a description of the bird. <laughs> Describe the bird, lady. Well, what'd she say? It weighs about 180 pounds and it's wearing a wool hat. <laughs> Better send the car. Leonard Frey, whose voice I recognized immediately, and it took me so long to finally place him. He is one of the the uh, husbands. He's the man who needs a sewing machine. He's the tailor in Fiddler on the Roof. And so when he actually breaks into song towards the end of the episode, I was like, oh, yeah, this guy has pipes. This is amazing to be able to see him break into song on Barney Miller. I haven't seen Fiddler all the way through. All I know from Fiddler is Topol and singing If I Were a Rich Man, which is a fantastic song. So I didn't know that, but he's pretty good when he com- when it comes to singing in this episode. Very entertaining, and I like the, the play off of each other as far as the Jeffers character and the Gussick character, and that they both have these... Like dreams, you know, the, the idea of Roscoe Lee Brown, his character having been caught and escaped so many times. And he's just like, I'm ready to just go back to prison and live out my life there as long as, you know, it can be calm. The world is too noisy now. And he has his little dream. And then Gusick has his dream of being able to fly. He actually gets his dream to come true, which is great. And that he flies at the end. We don't see it, of course. He flies and then lands by the 
ambulance that's going to take him to Bellevue. And then they go, well, what's what was the point of taking him? <laughs> that's Barney's little like final just twist there at the end. I really like the interplay in the precinct because you have all these characters who are so different yet similar and they are each given in most of the episodes at least they're each given a little moment to shine and contribute something to the episode while you might look at someone like jack sue and say well he's kind of marginalized in the show he's not given much to do i would completely disagree again he's it's it's all about the way that these characters kind of collaborate together to create this show because the show could not stand on its own if it were just say Hal Linden and Abe Vigoda or Hal Linden by himself or just Abe Vigoda and the fact that Gregory Sierra Jack Sue Ron Glass they all put in the time and effort to really create believable characters that then each kind of you know their personality so much that you can almost feel it coming when they when they have a little quip or a little barb I just think it works so well And they foreshadowed something that happens in this episode, which I think will stay with us through the rest of Ron Glass's time on the show, which is a few episodes ago, Yamano was writing a report and uh, Harris is behind him and he's just given this really kind of purple prose describing it was a a dirty movie that they were uh, shutting down and he's talking all of this about this movie and comparing it to Fellini and all this stuff and Jack Sue writes it was a dirty movie and so this whole idea of Harris being so obsequious with his language now has been able to translate into Harris the novelist and this is going to play through so many episodes and I love this whole thing of him, you know, writing down things that are happening at the station when he's pretty much interviewing uh, Je- the Jeffers character and finding out more about him. I love that um, there's a series of uh, shot reverse shot between Harris and Roscoe Lee Brown that is really nice. I like this Ron Harris side story. I I didn't know that it was going to continue. I'm pretty sure it does. There's one thing that happens in an episode that I specifically remember, which was him typing, and I think he's writing his story. This is a future episode. I think it might even be a Dietrich episode, and he's talking about how he is able to type one thing and say other things or amazed that he's able to carry on a conversation, and then somebody comes over and reads the words, and he was basically typing down everything that he was writing. He wasn't as good as he thinks. I like that they're really giving some of these side characters and supporting characters something more to do than just spouting pithy one-liners. You know, I appreciate that, especially when we get to the final episode of the season, they really go all in on Gregory Sierra's character. I I mean, I love Ron Glass. I mean, he's fantastic in this episode. He's fantastic in the show, and I'm disappointed that he's not going to be with the show through its entire run, but then again, with a show that has seven seasons, eight seasons, and a spinoff show as well. Um, considering the show is made in 75 to 82, you know, I guess I guess I can't say I'm surprised that not everybody sticks around. But it's a little bit of a disappointment thinking about it now, thinking about how good their chemistry is now and wondering, like, when we're going to start seeing this kind of divergence of people leaving, because I think it comes pretty soon. Yeah, I think we only have Chano for one more season and then we start to see some different faces at the 12th. 
which is unfortunate because I really like Gregory Sierra and the final the final episode of this season is a a reason why. But yeah, I again, I mean, how Lyndon's great. Don't get me wrong. But man, I think everybody else in the show is just as good as he is. I like this one, too, when Harris asks uh, Yamana about uh, how to say, get me some coffee in Japanese. <laughs> and we think for pretty much the entire episode that suddenly Fish knows how to speak Japanese. Yeah, apparently. And then he doesn't. It's stupid, but it got a laugh. It got a laugh both times. I feel like they actually could have gone down the route of he did know Japanese, though. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I would have believed it. Fish is a man of mystery. He he really is. I look Abe Vigoda, his kind of brusqueness with the character works so well because almost everybody else is so personable. And then you have Abe Vigoda, and Abe Vigoda's character is kind of a, a cipher in a way. He's the old man, but he's not old, but he acts old, even though he's not old. Yeah, he's the best. I mean, he's my favorite part of the show. But then again, that's because I probably, you know, identify with him. <laughs> More than anyone else on the show. I will say though, I'm I was disappointed that this is the only episode we get to see Roscoe Lee Brown in the show because he steals the show. And they had to have known when they were on set with him <laughs> that he was stealing the show. Oh yeah. I mean they feature him so heavily. Just they set up that camera by that jail cell and it's like just let the man go. And he even gets that button at the end with the guy who's taking him away to this new prison that was designed just with him in mind so he can't escape. And he's just like, please don't tell me that. Well, and those those like kind of like mini monologues that he gets are just so good. And then he manages to throw, you know, don't tell him it's Aldous Huxley. Yeah, I just I love Roscoe Lee Brown. I love I love everything about this episode because, again, like it's a pretty low key episode. There's not a whole lot of stakes. But they managed to imbue the situation with some interesting dialogue, some interesting setup. And, you know, you have the Birdman opposite the kind of escape artist of the title. And they have a little bit of interesting interplay. I just I think it's all around a really good episode. So let's talk a little bit about hair. The description on the Wikipedia is not so good. The description on IMDb. DB is a little bit better because they hit on this whole idea of a Serpico replica joins the squad temporarily. I was surprised. I looked up the guy that plays Detective Paul Gardino, Michael Lembeck, and he was an actor for a while, but then he became a director, and I think he's still directing today. So he's an interesting part of the show because it does feel a lot like Miss Cop. Even, I mean, not with the way that it resolves itself, but it does feel like Miss Cop. And to your point about Michael Gardino, uh, or Michael Lembeck, he did direct the Rock Dwayne Johnson vehicle Tooth Fairy in 2010. Yeah, he directed a couple kids' movies of memory. The Santa Claus like, 3. There we go. I knew it was something. And the Santa Claus 2, but not the original Santa Claus. The original Santa Claus is a holiday staple around my household. Two and three, not so much. Even though Martin Short is in the third one? Okay, I haven't seen the third one in a long time, but I know the first one almost by heart because I've seen it a million times. I've seen it every year since it came out at Christmas time, since whenever it came out, like the 90s. And it has Judge Reinhold in it. Yeah, I've only ever seen the trailer. So when I think of that movie, I just think of Tim Allen going, 
Coco Chicho. <laughs> I mean, he's a Detroiter. You haven't watched the Santa Claus. He's a Detroiter. He got arrested in the Detroit airport for all that cocaine that he was smuggling with him. Because let's not forget, Tim Allen was a coke dealer at one point. And the only reason he didn't go to prison is because he turned on all of his friends. <laughs> so we've got our A story, which is this whole thing with Detective Paul Gardino. And he comes to the station and has this, like they say, he's a Serpico clone. He's got the big beard. He's got the earring. He's got the long hair. He's got kind of like the fisherman's cap, all this kind of stuff going on. And the guys are just not having it. And just... <laughs> Like, they are so offended by the earring, especially, and just like, why aren't you shaving? You have a beard. And it's just so funny now in 2020 when it's just like, especially now here in quarantine, when people have, you know, plague beards going on. But even outside of that, when it's just like, so many people have the great big bushy beards, and it's like, okay, yeah, he really is being offensive here by having this beard, guys. From my other favorite police piece of fiction. A great big bushy beard. Look, I, I do think at some point we need to touch on the fact that we're watching a TV show about cops. <laughs> well, funny cops, obviously, but cops nonetheless, which in 2020, the optics of that are neither here nor there. I find it funny, their comments towards the quote-unquote Serpico replica of the, you know, shave your damn hair, hippie, and shave your face, hippie. Because, I mean, that's what it is, right? It's a very, you know, old school mentality and all the dudes in the precinct, for the most part, have either no facial hair or the traditional cop of the 70s mustache. I mean, the problem I have with this episode goes to the character played by Michael Lembeck, who he proves that he is a, a, a complete weasel. I'm not a huge fan of that. They didn't have to do that. In, in my opinion, they didn't have to do that. It doesn't give the character any points. It just makes everyone at the precinct who is out of touch feel like, well, they were on, they were right. You know, I'm not a huge fan of that kind of storytelling. I mean, these days they'd probably cancel Barney Miller just like they canceled Paw Patrol. Those liberal bleeding hearts, the way they just want to cancel everything. Cancel culture is just, it's on a rampage. Are you being serious or facetious? I'm being 100% facetious because they never canceled Paw Patrol. Patrol. Okay, good. I'm just making sure here. I mean, look, I have an issue with cancel culture. Who is my podcast partner? <laughs> what have you done with him? <laughs> um, I, well, here's the thing, because I genuinely don't know sometimes. I know with you, but I don't know what sometimes how people feel about cancel culture. Because for me personally, I feel like cancel culture serves a purpose, but not really. The problem with cancel culture is like anything else. It's a very slippery slope. Once we start canceling one thing, we have to start canceling everything. And it's like, well, you know, that's not how that works. And, you know, again, cancel culture, cancel culture for me is a very um, groupthink version of censorship. Gang mentality censorship is what cancel culture is. There's a there's a time and place for it, but not every single thing that ever had to do anything with cops needs to be canceled. But you know what does need to be canceled and was canceled? Cops. <laughs> The TV show. I love that meme where it's the guy with the glasses and he's holding out his hand and there's a butterfly and he's always like, is this whatever? And the butterfly said criticism. And then the uh, man with the glasses said, is this cancel culture? <laughs> I mean, yeah, being critical of stuff is perfectly fine. But just because you're critical of something doesn't mean it needs to be canceled. <laughs> you know, this episode has Henry Beckman in it, who we saw previously in our 
previous podcast, Kolchak Tapes, in the Mr. Ring episode. He's also one of my favorite supporting characters from the X-Files. I mentioned it on Kolchak. I'm going to mention it again here in the uh, Squeeze and Tombs episodes from the first season of that show. Not given much to do here. But, I mean, again, you know, you have these characters coming in and out of the precinct and being taken and put in the put in the pokey. So, you know, it's kind of always interesting to see them doing their thing, being given a little bit of room to play a character they wouldn't normally get a chance to otherwise. And Charles Fleischer as Floyd, the very tripped out guy in the cell. I didn't even realize that was him until I looked on IMDb. At first, I thought he was the uh, Gardino character, and I was just like, is he getting thrown in j- No, no, I'm, I was just so confused, because they looked kind of similar to me with like the big you know, beard and this kind of stuff. I mean, he just looked so unkempt. And yeah, Charles Fleischer, always a pleasure to see him. And he, again, not much to do, but at least he has fun with the role, I think. I think I didn't recognize him because he wasn't singing about shaving a haircut. If you don't get that reference, Charles Fleischer played Roger Rabbit <laughs> or voiced Roger Rabbit, I guess, more aptly. Uh, I didn't recognize him. Like, honestly, he was to God. there on set, remember? Wearing that's right. rabbit ears. That's right. That's right. I mean, that's not in the movie, but yeah, that's I totally forgot about that. He's great in this episode. I just didn't know it was him. And then we have the return of Florence Stanley as Bernice. Always good to see her. And I felt, I kind of feel bad for for Bernice now because it just feels like after we found out that Fish has been kind of running around on her and now him going to get jerked off. Possibly a handy, yeah. Jerked off. Happy ending massage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Wojo says, we busted that place three. Oh, that fish is going to get a jerk off. You know, that's fine. Just don't be married, bro. (laughs) I don't think he's getting it at home. I mean, here's the here's the issue with this show, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that have aged poorly. Abe Vigoda's relationship with his wife is, I just, you know, it's played for laughs. I'm curious to see what it's going to be like when we get Fish, the TV show. They can't have it relegated to one way dialogue into a telephone. With Abe Vigoda acting exasperated. Like, that, you, that's not going to be that show. There's going to have to be some sort of interaction with them. So I'm curious to see where that goes. But yeah, his relationship with his wife is just... Man, he's a turd. It's not good. I mean, I like the character so much. But then when it comes to Bernice, it's like, oh, man, do you have to be that mean all the time? Yeah, do you have to actively hate your wife? I mean, it's like Al Bundy-esque, right? It's like proto-Al Bundy, which... I mean, again, Al Bundy's character hadn't aged well either. I never understood that because I find Peg Bundy to just be super hot. And when she just wants to fuck all the time, I'm like, what is your problem, dude? Katie Seagal, bro. (laughs) What the fuck are you doing? I don't believe for a second you don't like your wife, dude. (sighs) I don't get it. I don't get it either. Sit and watch TV and fart, apparently. Yeah, but that's funny, dude. Ha ha. But yeah, that's our our three stories. And yeah, I have to say, comparing this to Ms. Cop, I definitely like Ms. Cop better. And this is the low point of these three episodes, though it's not bad. This is not like that courtesan episode where it's just like, oh, this feels really bad. I think the other issue I have with this episode is, like I mentioned before, you have the conclusion showing that... Michael Lumbeck's character is chicken shit. 
And I don't, I don't agree with that. I, I mean, I don't agree with that sentiment because then they poke fun at the end. It's like, well, Detective Harris, you've got your thing and Detective uh, Amengual, you've got your thing and Wojo, you've got your thing. You've all got your thing. It's like, what did we learn here? Oh, wait, nothing. At least in Miss Cop, it feels like the characters kind of made a little bit of a transition, maybe learned something. Here it's like, no, we just make fun of everybody and fuck them. Jesus Christ. Like, if it's to be believed the situation that happened in the episode, Chano almost died. Guys, like, he admittedly said, I almost took one between the eyes. Lembeck slash Gardino saved him. Yeah. Even if it wasn't intentional, he still saved him. But it's like, you didn't need to, you didn't need to tack that on to take the piss out of his character anymore. But yet they did. So yeah, I, this episode's, it's not bad. It's just that little ending coda probably didn't need to be there. Well, let's go ahead and talk about the third and final episode of this season in this episode, which is the hero. We have the return of Inspector Luger, who I said a few episodes ago that he was going to be on there. I found it very amusing that um, Todd Bridges is in this because I just watched that um, child star uh, documentary that was on HBO that Alex Winter directed. And I thought Todd Bridges was dead, but instead it was everybody else only remaining primary cast member now friend of culture cast and friend of projection booth alex winter (laughs) who's become a great documentarian now by the way hell yes and i can't wait to see bill and ted three i can't wait to see it because i hope to god it's the movie i think it's going to be and if it is i'm so ready i am praying to wild stallions it is the movie i think it's going to be because if i think if it is what i think it's going to be it's going to be amazing uh but you know the funny thing about todd bridges in this episode this is i think his second acting role and for a child actor around solely adults it's really good and we've got the return of barbara berry as elizabeth miller so that's really nice and she's the one that does a citizen's arrest on todd bridges character who is trying to Hold him up, hold her up with a stick. Is a stick up. Barbara Bari was in the last episode, but she was given nothing to do, which is such a shame because she is such a good counterpoint to how Lyndon's Barney Miller. But we are totally bearing the lead because this is a Chano episode. And my God, Gregory Sierra, I'm getting chills just thinking back to this episode. Gregory Sierra just... He owns this episode. It is so amazing. So Chano goes out on a call, I think with Fish, and it's a bank robbery, and Chano ends up shooting the bank robbers and killing them. And when he comes back to the precinct, we know that something is wrong, and we don't know exactly what it is. And he's acting almost strung out. I thought maybe he got dosed with something. I was just like, what is happening with Chano? And then when the explanation comes that he killed these three people, it's like, oh, okay. And then I like that Luger is there to provide some weird comic relief, like that he sees Chano as this hero and he just plays it up. Because I think if we didn't have him there, any other character doing that would have just felt wrong. But I think we really needed him to be there to be this like old school voice being like, oh, you took care of those guys. You know, you're, you're great. I'm going to get you a, a medal of honor. Yeah, I I liked it as well. You know, I was thinking about it, and initially the James Gregory character, I I didn't 
agree with him being there, but when you when you said it that way that no other character should have done it in the precinct, I completely agree. You had to have an outsider character come in and be that kind of weird like juxtaposition between the two. And it's it's super weird. He's totally tone deaf to what's going on. He can't read the room. And it's just, he's almost like the voice of the people as far as like, oh, hey, this guy did this job. And of course, what a brave policeman. And instead, Chano is just totally shaken up. And we get to see Chano's house or apartment, which is also nice. And we also get to see a male character in a TV show cry. Which is, I mean, for me, that's not the scene that's the most powerful. The most powerful scene in the episode is when they come back and you see Jack Sue's face and you see Ron Harris's face and you see Max Gale's face and you can tell that they understand what's going on and they're just sitting there watching James Gregory act like a clown and everyone else is just like completely silent. I don't think any other character says anything in that scene. When, when James Gregory shows up and the looks on their faces is just so, it's just, it's really sad. It's really heartbreaking because you know, you understand as the audience what Chano is dealing with. And it's like, he's just sitting there suffering in silence. And this, you know, character played by James Gregory is just going on and on and on. It's like, dude, give it a rest. When you watch certain TV series, there are episodes that stand out. And you'll be like, okay, this is probably an episode that got nominated for an award or won an award. I'm trying to think the last time I saw an episode like that. I think uh, when I was doing a watch of uh, Pose, there was one particular episode in the first season where I was just like, wow, this thing blew me away. And then when I found out that it had been nominated for a bunch of awards and people had won, I was like, okay, yeah, that makes total sense. This feels like that. This feels like the writing staff was firing on all cylinders. Everyone in front of the camera, behind the camera, everything was perfect. I don't think that this was nominated for anything, but had it been, I would not have been surprised because this just, what a way to close the first season. Holy shit. It is a a hard hitting episode in a way that like, again, the show has the show has really been doing this bizarre balancing act for a comedy cop show where they are balancing serious issues with the comedy. And they've been doing a really good job of juxtaposing the two, the comedy and the drama. And obviously they've leaned into the comedy a lot more than they've leaned into the drama. And with this episode, it's, you know, a a episode that has a side one of the side stories is comedic the the whole Todd Bridges Cal Gibson Barbara Barre um Barbara Barry Jesus Barre what the fuck am i saying Barbara Barry Barry yeah the Barbara Barry side plot is very comedic obviously you know you've got a pimp talking to a child about you know going up to sing sing but you do have this really emotional hard hitting Side plot and the main plot is, you know, the main plot of the episode, frankly, with Gregory Sierra really feeling torn up about having to, you know, do ostensibly what his, what is his job. And, you know, that's what Hal Linden's character kind of tells him at the end when he comes to his apartment as kind of the voice of reason and the voice of comfort. I think that scene could have gone on longer. I think in the final scene, Hal Linden could have stuck around longer. I think that there could have been a little bit more interplay, but also at the same time, that's Barney's character, 
mean, Barney Miller is, you know, he's he's there for his, you know, precinct mates when he needs to be, but he also is their boss. And so, you know, he has to tell it like it is, unfortunately. And, you know, the whole thing about the the sperm whale, you know, that's just the way it is. Um, but when you were talking about episodes that I've watched of TV or that you've watched of TV that you felt like, like, holy shit, like, this is the episode. Like, this is one of the episodes people are going to be talking about outside of the context of the show. For me, it was always the Clyde Buck, Clyde Bruckman's final repose from the X-Files, um, which was a very similar to, similar in ways to this episode where you have the characters engaging with a character in a way that feels natural to the show, but at the same time, it's confronting things that the show doesn't always confront in a serious way. Because I'm pretty sure we've had episodes of Barney Miller where they've shot people, right? It seems like it. I don't know. Like, that's what's kind of weird about this episode, right? Is they're making a big deal about Chano killing someone. But I was under the impression that they'd already all killed someone. I mean, it is interesting. If they have, if they've even used their guns, it just doesn't have the weight that this one does. Right. They make a big deal about the fact that Chano had to kill two people robbing a bank, and he's broken up about it. And you're right. That side plot with the pimp. I mean, that's again, that's like... Barney showing some heart and talking to this pimp and being like, listen, if you do a good job with this, you know, it'll definitely will will take care of you, basically, as far as like playing along with this whole thing of scaring this little kid to never do crime again. And it's that whole scared straight kind of thing. And I loved it. And uh, apparently Cal Gibson is going to come back a couple more times as different characters. And I'm really looking forward to it. And obviously, Todd Bridges will be talking about him a lot more in regards to Barney Miller with Fish, because he ends up being one of the characters on Fish. Not the character from this episode, which felt like a missed opportunity, but obviously in, you know, 75, they didn't care about connecting anything back to anything if you've got the same actor playing three different characters. But the Barney Miller extended universe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> BMEU, man. Uh, but Todd Bridges, we'll see Todd Bridges here pretty quick when we start talking about Fish. So I think everything about this episode is really good. I think it, everything about this episode works really well. And there's just a couple things I wish they could have kind of elaborated or given a little bit more time to breathe. The scene between Barney and Chano really could have been given just a tad bit more room to breathe. I felt I felt when Chano started crying that I felt Barney was going to come back into the room because they had framed the shot in such a way that you could still see the door behind him. And I thought that Barney was going to come back in. Obviously, he doesn't. But again, then you have kind of this comedic outro and it didn't it didn't feel right to end the show the season that way, like on a purely comedic note. And also, I did not need to see Gregory James again. or I did not need to see James Gregory again. I frankly find his character to be slightly detestable. Because I know he becomes more of a regular on this show, and I'm very curious how we're going to see his character change, because a little bit of Inspector Luger goes a long way. Yeah, we only needed him once in this episode, not twice. Period. Period. But I will say, though, if we're talking about the season as a whole, best episode of the season, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Worst episode of the season is the episode featuring the crossdresser. 
This is probably my number one. I would say Experience, the one where uh, Fish diffuses the bomb or gets rid of the bomb uh, in the safe. I think that's probably my second one. Um, and I don't know from there, maybe the, the one where they, um, are doing the stakeout. I think that might be the third one for me. I like the guest a lot as well. The one where they're guarding the mafia witness and they get all the sandwiches are poisoned. I thought that, I mean, that's, that's a funny one. I also like the one where Max Gale just randomly shows up in a karate outfit. I'm just kidding. That, that, like, every time I see that intro scene with him doing that, my thought is like, Boy, completely taken out of context. It's way funnier than when it was in context. I am really curious if they're going to change this intro <laughs> they for the have next to. season. I feel like they kind of have to. <laughs> but if they don't, I'll be really shocked. So next time we come back, we're going to be talking about the first three episodes of the second season. I'm very curious how that's going to be. And uh, first episode of the second season aired September 11th, 1975. So make of that as you will. And boy, you know what the title of that episode is? Doomsday. Oh, this is more complicated than the Breakfast in America Super Tramp Theory. He said he said it, not me, folks. I knew it. It's all a conspiracy. You gotta get rid of that water that's turning the frogs gay. <laughs> I swear to God, the frogs are all gay. We turned them all gay. Chris, when you're not turning frogs gay, what are you up to? I hate to break it to everyone listening to this podcast, but my my job when I'm not doing this is actually turning frogs gay. <laughs> you know that that's that's my day job. Uh, no, as for myself, you can find me on Twitter at casualty underscore Chris. I am the host and or co-host of several podcasts: The Culture Cast, Scary Stories We Tell, Dreams for Sale, Chronicles from the Crypt. There's a lot of podcasts. Um, yeah, yeah, dude. Trust me, boy. It is it is all consuming in a good way. Uh, but you can find me on Twitter at casualty underscore Chris. What about you, Mike? Where can people find you when we're not talking about Barney Miller? Well, you can find me over at the projection booth podcast.com and you can also find me on Dreams for Sale, which I guess we gotta put up another episode of that pretty soon. I can't remember. It just feels like it's uh it's it's like a dream. It's like another world. And it's for sale. Oh for the little price of I, free because it doesn't cost anything to listen to it, and you should. That's true. Yeah, that, we get to talk about. Killed me so hard to do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I That's good. fucking hate self promotion. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to John Walker for our theme. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you like the show, please go on over to iTunes, rate and review the show. We could uh, really use the ratings because I don't even know if we have one now. So we will see. And don't forget, I am the co-host on this show. What we should do is start a blog and talk about the best podcasts that are out there right now and make sure that we get on the list. <laughs> Actually, what we should do is only put our podcast on the list. I mean, you've got enough for almost a top 10 list there. I hate that statement more than you know. 